0: Hello, and welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word. So please grab your Bibles, and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's message.
1: Okay, so now let's get back into our, our, our series in Abraham, and now we're going to deal with a situation dealing with Melchizedek. He's a shadowy figure in the Old Testament that people don't know much about. And then he will be reiterated uh, in Hebrews chapter seven in the New Testament. And I think we're gonna explore this and I think what you're gonna see uh, is a very serious principle uh, in regards to Abraham because Abraham's gonna have to pass another test. And the only way he passes this test is with the help of Melchizedek. And so um, I wanna take you through it and show you how that same principle actually helps you and I in the crazy times that we're in. I mean, Abraham's in a crazy time. He's just went to war to rescue his knucklehead nephew, Lot, because uh, he's got taken in plunder, and so now he's he's brought Lot back, and the, the ingrate that Lot is, okay, um, he's a classic case of Laodicean believers that you help them, they don't even say thanks, and he goes right back into Sodom. And you're, you're thinking, did this kid not learn anything? You know, he was nearly killed, and Abraham had to go rescue him. Well, that's kind of how Laodicea is. So I'm sure um, a- Abraham was frustrated with the boy our young man or whatever, um, and just as you would be too, is you, you help somebody and you rescue them out of something that could kill them, and then they turn around and go do it again. It's just, it, it blows my mind. Okay, so Abraham, this is coming on the heels of him rescuing Lot, okay? So Lot's went back into Sodom. The Sodomites don't even thank him. And now he's gonna meet the king of Sodom, Okay? So you're gonna have two figures in the text, and I want you to pay particular attention to the contrast between Melchizedek and the king of Sodom and what they represent, okay? And that will be the dynamic in which Abraham has to face. And it is the dynamic that you and I will have to face or are facing right now, okay? So let's start in Genesis chapter 14, 17 through 24. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, after his return from the de- defeat of Kedor-la-Omer and the kings who were with him. So again, on the heels of, of Abraham going and rescuing Lot, but at the same time that he rescued Lot, he destroyed the kings of the Mesopotamia area and their armies with just 318 guys. Tax them at night. Gets the plunder back from Lot. Gets the plunder back from Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and it's, a, a, it's a route. It's a supernatural, miraculous route of them, obviously with God's help. Okay, So, he's on his way back. He's freed, he's freed Lot. And on his way back, he is passing through the valley of Sheveh. That is the king's valley. Well, the king's valley is easily locatable. The King's Valley is the Kidron Valley. Abraham is passing through the Kidron Valley, which is the valley between the Mount of Olives and Jerusalem. Okay, so you got the scene there? He's passing through that area. Okay, this is what the King's Valley looks like today. Uh, it's, it's called the Kidron Valley, but the Kidron Valley goes really, really long. Okay. And some of the, the northern part, or sorry, the eastern part of the Kidron Valley runs out to the Dead Sea. Uh, but this area also, uh, between the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount structure there, which is Jerusalem, is also called the Valley of Jehoshaphat in that section. That section is called the Valley of Jehoshaphat. The whole, the whole valley is Kidron. But back then, in Abraham's time, it was called the King's Valley, okay? So that that's significant. That's symbolic. The fact that this is all going down right there in Jerusalem, or by Jeru- next to Jerusalem. And just to show you what the King's Valley is, there's the Mount of Olives. That's on the eastern side, and then you can it runs down this way. And that's um, looking southern. Yes, no. This is uh, looking towards the uh, the uh, Mount of Olives. Um, you see that white area of the Mount of Olives, that's all graves. That's all graves. And because um, the Jews bury uh, their dead, and it's a a high priority to get buried in that area because they focus in on Zechariah chapter uh, 14 where it says his foot will stand on the Mount of Olives. And so they think when the Messiah comes, um, and remember, they're thinking first time, we're thinking second time, right? Uh, That Messiah comes, they want to be resurrected at the place that he comes. Well, it's true, he will come there, but it's the second coming, and his foot will step on the Mount of Olives and actually split the mountain in two. Um, In the Mount of Olives, you still have, um, this is that one that uh, has a pyramid shape on the top of it. That is uh, the tomb of the prophet Zechariah. It's still there today. And again, another look. This is looking... Yeah, Yeah, that's Mount of Olives. Yeah, Mount of Olives, straight ahead. Uh, Here's the graves. You can see just littered all through the Mount of Olives. This is looking northward uh, through the Kidron Valley. And you see that church on the upper kind of right-hand side? That church was built in the area that is the Garden of Gethsemane. So that's where the Lord would have been in that general area um, and prayed uh, before he got arrested, okay, let me show you something interesting. Um, when you look at the geography of Israel, since we 're talking about valleys i want to, I want you to see that. So there are actually three valleys in Jerusalem. Um, to the very right, you have like what we 're looking at the Kidron Valley, and you can see where uh, um, the temple Mount is, and then the Mount of Olives over there, so that 's the Kidron valley, but then in the middle you have um, the the, the Tyropian Valley that cuts through the middle of Jerusalem, okay? And then on the outside, you have the Hemnon Valley. That's the Valley of Gehenna, where Jesus likened hell or the lake of fire to Gehenna, the Valley of Gehenna, because that's where they did child sacrifice. That's where they threw their trash, and there was always ever-burning trash in that valley for the residents of Jerusalem. So it was always going... The worm never dies because it was just a trash heap, okay? But um, what it makes is the letter sheen, okay? You can see the letter. You can see the modern version. You can see the paleo uh, sheen. And really, the paleo sheen looks like a man with his hands up, okay? And this is what the Jews, as the letter, take it to mean the name of God, okay, the sheen. And they get it from El Shaddai, Shaddai. So they're getting the sheen from the SH sound in Shaddai. So they call it the sheen, which is the mark of God or the name of God. And again, they won't mention God's name like we say it, Yahweh. They, They will say just Hashem. Uh, which means ha is the, and then shem is name, so it's the name. So they'll refer to God as Hashem. They won't mention his name. I think that's a misunderstanding of the commandment, thou shalt not take his name in vain. It meant in Hebrew to carry his name on you. It doesn't mean to speak it wrongly. Anyway, the interesting thing about Jerusalem is the scriptures note that his name has been put there on Jerusalem. Okay? But I have chosen Jerusalem that my name might be there. Second Kings, and he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord said, in Jerusalem I will put my name. And so with the three valleys and the sheen being used, God has put his name on top of Jerusalem. And why? Because he owns it, right? That's his area, okay? And interesting enough, on the, uh, on the doorposts of the Jews... You know, they will have uh, the little roll-up scroll in the little square box. You ever seen one of those on their houses? And uh, they'll, it'll have the sheen on it, the, the letter sheen uh, on that. One more thing I want to point out to you. On, on the Temple Mount, you see Mount Moriah, okay? And that's where Abraham will eventually take Isaac, okay? Then you go down lower past the Temple Mount, which would be the southern steps today and, and between the city of David, and you have Mount Ophel. And then you go down further, and then you have Mount Zion. So the actual mountain of, of Jerusalem has three mountains on top of it, okay? So it's, the, the whole thing is built on three mountains. Now... The rabbis don't know why, they, they come up with all kinds of different aspects. But if the Jerusalem has the name of God and is con- connotating the name of God, then it's obviously a reference to the Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And each one has a specific name uh, you know, that's associated with uh, the first, second, and third uh, of the Trinity. So when God says, I put my name there, he not only puts his name there, but he's actually putting his nature there as well. It's one God, one mountain, and three hills, three three mountaintops. One God, three persons. So it's all over Jerusalem. So when any activity happens in Jerusalem, like in the text that you're seeing right now, it is highly symbolic Highly, highly, and so we have to pay attention when it's dealing with Jerusalem and the Kidron Valley, okay? And I, I wanted to state that so you see the depth of what we need to understand, that the interaction that happens, okay? So he comes back, and notice, I'm going to go back here. And the king of Sodom went out to, to meet him in the valley of Shav- Shava. okay? So uh, picture this. Abraham's walking through the Kidron Valley, next to Jerusalem, and all of a sudden, the king of Sodom comes to him, okay? Nothing is said, but the entourage is coming out to meet Abraham, and immediately, instead of talking to him, this figure called Melchizedek immediately intervenes, okay, before Abraham can even talk to the king of Sodom, this Melchizedek stops everything and then is gonna discuss things with Abraham before he talks to the king of Sodom. So then Melchizedek. Well, what does Melchizedek mean? It mean Mel, me, uh, Melech means king in Hebrew. And Zedek, obviously, just he's from this area. He's a, uh, the Zedeks, uh, so in that area. And uh, it means king of righteousness. So uh, our Zedek is righteousness. But here's what you have to understand. It doesn't tell you where he's from. It doesn't tell you who he is. It doesn't tell you who his genealogy is. He just shows up. And plus, he doesn't tell you what age. Okay, so there's something going on here. And he is the king of Salem. Salem was called that in the Jebusite day but it's short for Jerusalem that you will learn later on. And what did he do? He brought out bread and wine to Abraham, okay? And what was he? He was a priest of God Most High. And the term Most High means El Elyon, the highest God, the Most High God. Above all gods, this guy is a priest to God, okay? And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham, God most high, El Elyon, possessor of heaven and earth. And the idea is that he is the king of the universe. God is the king of all, king of the universe. He's just not some tribal deity. He's just not some God over a certain part of the area or land. This is the the God who created all things. So it's a reference to the creation and his power. But he's king of all and I'm his high priest, okay? That's what's going on here. Now notice in verse 19, and he blessed him. Who blessed who? Melchizedek blessed Abraham, okay? So in the Hebrew concept is the only person that has the ability to bless another person is a superior to an inferior, okay? So who blessed who? Melchizedek blesses Abraham. So what does that imply? Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, Father Abraham. And you think, my goodness, Abraham's way up there, right? He's one of the, 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 the leaders of the faith. He's carrying the covenantal promises. Yes, that's true, and Abraham is great, but someone is greater in his presence, and it's Melchizedek who is this King that recognizes Yahweh has nothing to do with Abraham okay now Hebrews chapter 7 gives us a little bit more insight for this Melchizedek king of Salem and basically the Jebusites controlled Jerusalem priest of the Most High God wait a second how in the world can this guy be a king and a priest because Under Mosaic law, later on that comes, the king is separated, that office of king is separated from the Levites, and neither of them can cross over. So in this man, he's not only the king, but he's also a priest, at the same token, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, which means he's superior to Abraham, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, First being translated king of righteousness. And then also the king of Salem, meaning king of peace. So he's the king of righteousness and he's the king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy. What does that mean? He has the ancestry to be in this priesthood of Melchizedek requires a, an oath being taken. Not genealogy. And what's that doing is contrasting the Levitical priest. In order to be a Levitical priest, you had to be born from parents who were Levi, from the tribe of Levi, in order to be a Levitical priest. Not in this order. This order is appointed by oath by God. So he's different. And having neither beginning of days nor end of life. So there's never an end for this person. Uh, the Levites. Uh, if you read numbers 824 through 25 to be a levitical priest you could only serve from age 25 to 50 and that was it you had to retire at 50 you couldn't start any earlier than 25 this one though can go on forever okay but made like this is a participle being used the son of god remains a priest continually so he never dies he never he never, um, he never died, you know, he never, his, his priesthood never ends. It continues on forever. It's timeless, it's unending, it's eternal, okay? Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are the sons of Levi who received the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, the Jews, so the Levites only minister to Jews, That's what he's trying to say. This priest ministers to all, okay? Though they have come from the loins of Abraham, but he whose genealogy is not derived from, the, from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. So it's universal, it's not just simply national, Okay. Writer of Hebrews continues on to give us more information. For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there's also a change of the law. So this is what it's saying. If there's a new priesthood, that the Le- Levitical priesthood has been done away with, which it has, okay? According to Colossians chapter 2, the Mosaic Law, the 613 commands, have been fulfilled and annulled. Okay, because of what Messiah did. So a new law has come. So when you have a new priesthood, that new priesthood requires a new law. You can't have the Mosaic law functioning as a new priesthood functions, which is in effect today. So what that means is the this new law is for this dispensation that we must keep, not for salvation, but in order to um, obey God and do what he wants us to do in our sanctification. Okay, so let me tell you a little secret on this. The Mosaic law contains 613 commands. The new law that you and I are under is called the law of the Messiah, or the spirit of the law. The law of the Messiah contains about 1,050 commands. Okay, so it's almost double that of the Mosaic law. So don't think that we're in the New Testament and we're in the church age and there's no law. Every dispensation has law. Even in Eden, they had a law don't eat from the tree, right? That was the law. So in the New Testament, in the church age, because we have a new priesthood in the order of Melchizedek, not of Levi, we are to, are to function under the 1,050 laws called the law of the Messiah, okay? So that's, that's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to explain. So for Jesus to function in his high priestly role right now, because Jesus is not from the tribe of Levi, is he? What tribe is Jesus from? Judah. Judah. Well, Judah had no right to minister at the altar. Therefore, Jesus is now considered a high priest now in the order of Melchizedek. Therefore, for him to function in this order, the Mosaic law has to be rendered inoperative, in which it is, and Paul will make that point many, many times. But a new law comes with this Melchizedekian priesthood, which is the 1,050 laws. Okay, for he whom these things are spoken because to another tribe, for which no man has officiated at the altar. Right, because why? He's from Judah. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tried Moses nothing concerning the priesthood. Spoken nothing. And it is yet far more evident, in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of fleshly commandment, the idea of genealogy, right? But according to the power of an endless life. Messiah is God, that means his life is endless, right? and he was resurrected. For he testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now Jesus was given this after the resurrection. He was appointed high priest after the resurrection. Okay, so he's prophet, priest, and then eventually he'll be king. So Jesus combines both offices of king, priest, and prophet in the order of Melchizedek. And Psalm 110 made this prediction that this would be said of the Messiah. But he, because he continues forever, because the Messiah is God, has an unchangeable priesthood. It continues forever, that Melchizedekian priesthood. Why is that important? I'm going to make the point in just a second. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost. So the Greek word is pentales, and it makes it it, it, it it points out to make it into to make it to a destination with everything completed, save forever, saved totally, save completely. And the implication that He Jesus can save to the uttermost implies eternal security. Okay? That when you believe in him, he will. Finish it, he will bring you to the final destination. And the final destination is glorification. Obviously, resurrection, adoption, all of that, okay. Why is that important? Because I'm telling you right now, the doctrine of eternal security is not being held by most Christians anymore. They have forsaken it. So what are the Christians holding to, especially the younger ones? The younger ones are holding to that you can either lose salvation, Uh, or you never were saved if you do bad things, which is totally bogus. That's coming from a paradigm that doesn't understand eternal security. Eternal security means that you're secure in your salvation and it will be brought to a finish. But it does not imply that if you go live bad, bad things can happen to you, because it will. You can be punished by God. You can be disciplined by God. You're still saved, but you can be out of fellowship. That's what the other paradigm doesn't recognize. So the other paradigm of Calvinism and Arminianism says, well, you either weren't saved or you lost your salvation, which is bogus, okay? That's not understanding the Melchizedekian priesthood. If the priest can ever make intercession for you, that secures your salvation, okay? That's what secures it. It's because the eternal one is constantly making intercession. And look what he says, those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives, he never dies, he goes on forever, and the fact that when you do make a mistake, or you're about to make a mistake, and get into something you shouldn't, Jesus is right there as a high priest in Melchizedekian order to help you to plead for you, to wash you in his blood to reestablish fellowship forgiveness. And that intercession is what keeps you in the Father's hands and keeps you in the Son's hands because of that ongoing intercession, okay? Therefore, what's going on in the intercession? It means that at times in your life, not only is your salvation secure, but the high priest will come in and try to warn you before you do something stupid, okay? That's part of the intercession. It's multiple, reestablishing fellowship by the constant blood of the Messiah, that's 1 John chapter one, okay? His blood is constantly washing you, constantly. Okay so that's it right there for fellowship but on this sense the high priest is interceding for you in this life okay and he does it through warnings he does it by giving you a heads up he does it by letting you see something before you make a bad decision so you have a helper not only the holy spirit but the messiah himself is trying to guide you away from certain things and trying to encourage you and trying to uplift you and strengthen you so you don't fall into temptation. That's the ongoing ministry of the high priest that's happening right now to all of us. Okay, so I want to put that out there. That's what currently Jesus is doing for you right now. Okay. And he blessed, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies, into your hand. Now this Melchizedekian priest, this is very odd because you and I are inferiors. We can't bless God. God can only bless us. We're inferior. Only the authority can bless down. We but this guy blesses God. That's odd, isn't it? It's weird to say something like that. He is a Melchizedekian priesthood. And so I've read theologians on this and they they say, well, because he's in the order of Melchizedek, he can do this. and And what he's trying to do is explain to Abraham the reason you were able to rescue Lot and defeat these kings is because God most high did it for you. So you should be thankful to him. Maybe, maybe, I don't know. It's very, very odd for a human being to say, bless God. Very odd. So something's different here. Something's not making sense, okay? Okay. And he gave him a tithe of all. Okay? So since Melchizedek blesses Abraham uh, and he brought... um, the bread and he brought the wine out to him. And, and again, the bread and wine shows Abraham that through the Melchizedekian priesthood, provision is made for him. So that's what this, the idea of the bread and wine is that you come from battle, now I'll provide for you. I provided for you in the battle, now I'll provide to satisfy your physical needs. But it's much more than that. It's speaking of the provision that God provides, okay? So understand what Melchizedek is doing. He's saying, Abraham, it is only by God that you won. And number two, I am going to provide for you. Okay, those two aspects. So Abraham responds with giving a tithe, which tithe in Hebrew just means a tenth. Okay, a tenth. But remember this, what is it a tenth of? The spoils of war. Okay, this is not coming from Abraham's checkbook and his bank account. It is coming from the spoils of war. Now, let me do a sidebar right now to clear up the legalism that's been perpetrated in the churches for like the last hundred years in America, okay? You cannot base giving off of this. It is a one-time event, and it is from the spoils of war. It is not as God prospers Abraham on a routine, systematic basis that he keeps going to Melchizedek and giving Melchizedek his money, a portion of it. Uh Uh-uh. So when you hear a pastor use this passage, you must tithe 10% of your income, that is built off a scripture that is descriptive, not prescriptive. It is not a command. It is telling you just simply what Abraham did, okay? Now, let me go a little bit further and explain a few things. Since we're talking about giving, which is misunderstood. In the new covenant, under the law of the Messiah, under the Melchizedekian priesthood, you are not required to give a certain percentage That is Old Testament. Number two, the church is not the storehouse like the storehouse was in the temple. So when a pastor uses uh, Malachi chapter three to beat you over the head that bring the tithes to the storehouse, he knows he's wrong. He wants that 10%. And I wanna say, pastor, are you really gonna do that? Because under Mosaic law, it actually required 22 to 23% every year from the average Jew. So you're gonna bump it up to 22 and 23 if you wanna be biblically consistent with the Mosaic law? No, we're just gonna stay at the lower end because if we go to 20 something, people will freak out. Yeah, I bet, I bet they will. So they, oh, we'll just keep it right here because, you know, Abraham did it at 10%. We'll just follow Abraham. No, 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 you can't do that. That's not under Mosaic law. This is happening before Mosaic law happens. So what's the rule under the law of the Messiah? Well, Paul gives it. It's 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, I believe. Today, it is spirit-led giving since the Holy Spirit indwells you. He tells you what amount. It's not a set percentage. Every week, you go before the Lord and you ask him, what should I give? Okay, and then he will tell you. Well, you say, well, I don't function like that. Well, get get used to it because this idea of having a set amount and you never think about it again is enslavement to what you just set. So you're never cooperating with the Holy Spirit because well, I, I always give this percentage, always, always, and I always give it to the storehouse, I always give it to the church. Now here's the thing they're not gonna tell you. Not only does the Holy Spirit determine how much you give, the Holy Spirit also directs you where you should give. And there are five distinct areas Okay. Obviously, one is the local church, but he may not direct you this week to give to the local church that you attend. The other one is your family, a family member in need, not in want, but a family member in need. He who does not provide for his family is worse than an infidel. This is what the Pharisees were doing. They couldn't, they wouldn't use their money to take care of mom and dad. And so the Pharisees were saying, Oh um I, I can't help you mom and dad. I have I have dedicated my money to the Lord only. And they weren't fulfilling their duty in taking care of their parents. And that was a mistake. So you you have family, then you have uh, ministry. And ministry could be a, any number of things, okay? Uh it could be supporting a missionary. It could be supporting um you know some ministry out there that you enjoy. I don't know. You know maybe maybe you used to give the Charles Stanley uh, ministry, and I, I hate to see that Charles Stanley's went home with the Lord, but uh, maybe you gave to Charles Stanley's ministry or or something like that. That's beyond your church, by the way. Okay. The fourth one: anyone who teaches the Bible that you're benefiting from. What do you mean? That goes all the way down to the Sunday school teacher that's teaching your kids. That goes down to the men's Bible study leader that's teaching the men's Bible study thing. It's anything where somebody is teaching the Bible, even in the women's ministry, you owe them financially for teaching the Bible. Okay, anyone that teaches, that's in Galatians by the way, anyone who teaches the Bible in a church setting is, is owed monetary okay, for teaching the Bible, Galatians chapter six. The last one, and most pastors are never gonna tell you this. According to Romans 15, 27, you must give to Jewish believers who are doing the work of Jewish ministry of evangelism and discipleship. You must do that. Paul says you owe it to them. So. Did you see the five areas? It's not just simply bring it to the storehouse to the local church. The Lord may direct you this week to give to Jewish missions. Next week he might say, you need to have help your family member out here that lost their job. And then the next week he might say, well, give to your local church. And then the next week he says, give to your, your, your adult Bible study school teacher Uh, who's teaching the men's Bible study, or give it to your your women's uh, Bible study teacher. Give it to them. And each week, the Holy Spirit will move you in areas. Maybe he'll tell you to do all five areas. I don't know. But you must be in relationship with the Holy Spirit to know where to give. So it's not every Sunday you give to the local church. And I know I'm slicing my own neck, okay, by saying this. But I'm not gonna teach you falsehood and say, all your money's gotta come here. That's baloney. I will be quenching the Holy Spirit in your life and I will grieve the Holy Spirit by me telling you legalistically things that are not true. I will, in effect, be a liar to you. And I'm not gonna do that. And here's the thing, I'm not worried about it because the fact is if you teach giving correctly, like I just did, God will take care of you. It's those who push the legalism that are always struggling with their budget. Always. And that's why they always talk about money. Because you're putting legalism on people and you won't be able to sustain it unless you twist their arm every Sunday. That's the problem. So anyway, that's a little sidebar. I hope that helps you. Now here's the thing. Now here's the biggie. You're ready for the biggie. So we've had the Melchizedekian influence on Abraham, the intercession, the provision. Now the king of Sodom, now he comes into the picture. Said to Abraham, give me the persons and take the goods yourself. Wait a second, you see what's happening here? You see why Melchizedek was important for Abraham to hear him first of who did this, who won the battle, who provided for you, and now the king of Sodom is saying this, look, here's my deal with you. You freed all these Sodom and Gomorrah people along with your brother. So Abraham's all, he's got all these people. Here's the deal. I'll give you the money. You just give me the people. Ho, oh. ho, ho, ho. I want that principle to sink in. The king of Sodom is a typology. The king of the, the Melchizedek is a typology of Messiah, you know that. But who is the king of Sodom a typology of? He's a typology of not only Satan but the Antichrist who says, I'll give you all the money you want from my world, but you just give me the people. You see this? He's asking Abraham to sell out the people he rescued for money. He's buying them off with money, but I want the people. The most important things in this transaction are the people. Not the money. And so the temptation is, I'll give you everything you want, Abraham. Just give me the people. I want the people. That is what's currently going on right now in our world. Sell them out and I'll make you rich. Sell the people out and and you will have the power sell the people out, sell America out, and we will be the elites that control the rest of the world. That's exactly what's happening, and the deal has been struck by many, many people. You look at the Biden administration, you look at the EPA, you look at all the, a lot of the politicians, they have sold out America for power and money, and we have given the people over to Satan and to the Antichrist because of what's going on. So you're either gonna make two decisions. I'm gonna follow the king of Salem, the Melchizedekian high priest, Yeshua, or I'm either gonna make a deal with the king of Sodom. That's how life is. You have a choice. Who will you do the deal with? Because the key is what you think about people. To Jesus, People are the most precious thing. To Satan, it's not that he sees people as precious. He just wants to destroy them. That's why he wants the people. Who are you following? Here's the principle. The temptation to compromise our trust in the Lord's provision and promises will typically be one that offers worldly gain or worldly advantage, i.e., or e.g., money, possessions, notoriety, position, power, from worldly sources instead of God. Where where did Melchizedek, he provided the bread and the wine. That's provision, that's God's provision, right? But in order to receive it, the person will have to sacrifice people for it. In your own personal life, the temptation will come to you, do you want to be rich? Do you want to be influential? Do you want power? Do you wanna be above it all? Do you wanna be secure and not worry about what's happening? Then they're saying, well then just give me your people. Give me your kids. They're wanting your kids. Don't worry, man, as long as you follow this ESG score, as long as you follow follow the LGBT agenda, as long as you follow the transgender, don't worry about it, you won't lose your job. As long as you sit through three hour meetings learning what it means to say other people's pronouns, you can keep your job. Don't worry about it, just go along and we will give you what you want, you just give me the people. You just give me your kids. Send them to public schools, then give them your kids. You've made a deal. At this point, the public schools are gone, okay? They're gone. So that's the deal that will be cut. I'll give you free education. Don't worry about it. It won't cost you a thing. I'll make it free for you. I'll even give the kids three meals a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner on their way out. Don't worry about it. And it won't come right out of your pocket. It's just free, it's free but give me your kids, give me your kids, because I want to indoctrinate them. Look at this. People are selling all the people of the world out. They're selling us out for the king of Sodom. New global currency is here. It's launched, 99% of the global population has no idea just what happened. The Universal Monetary Unit, also known as Unicoin, is the International Central Bank Digital Currency that has been designed to work in conjunction with all existing national currencies. And no one knows it. Controversial mRNA. They're putting mRNA into animals. And the companies are allowing this because they get rich going green and going ESG. At the same time, you die. Because they're putting that into the animal that you will consume and all of a sudden an mra drug is in you because you ate an animal the ar uh, the ai arms race is currently happening right now and it's out of control they can't control the thing listen to this
0: so all of a sudden ai is everywhere people who weren't quite sure what it was are playing with it on their phones is that good or bad yes it's one of the things that the sort of four or five things i thought would really uh, affect the future Uh, dramatically. Uh, Now, what happens when something uh, vastly smarter than the smartest person uh, comes along in silicon form? Uh, It's very difficult to predict what will happen in that circumstance. It's called the singularity. It's a singularity like a black hole because you you don't know what happens after that. It's hard to predict. So I think we should be cautious with uh, AI um, and we should, I think there should be some Government oversight, uh, because it affects—it's it, a danger to the public. And so, when you when you have things that are a danger to the public, uh, uh, we have we have these agencies to oversee things that uh, affect the public, where there they could be public harm. Um, and you don't want companies cutting corners uh, on safety, um, and then having people suffer as a result. So. Uh, that, that's why I've actually, for a long time, been a strong advocate of uh, AI uh, regulation. So, but all regulations start with a perceived danger and planes fall out of the sky or food causes botulism Yes. I don't think the average person yes. playing with AI on his iPhone perceives any danger. Can you just roughly explain what you think the dangers might be? It has the potential, uh, however small one may regard that probability, but it is non-trivial. It has the potential of civilizational destruction there's movies like terminator but it wouldn't quite happen like terminator um because the the intelligence would be in the data centers right uh the robot's just the end effector but i think perhaps uh, what you may be alluding to here is that um regulations are really only put into effect after something terrible has happened that's correct if that's the case for ai and we are only put in regulations after something terrible has happened it may be too late to actually put the regulations in place the ai may be in control at that point
1: you think that's real it is
0: it is conceivable that ai could take control and reach a point where you couldn't turn it off and it would be making making the decisions for people yeah absolutely absolutely no it's that's that's definitely where things are headed uh for sure Um, Larry Page and I used to be close friends and I would yes. stay at his house in Palo Alto and I would talk to him late into the night about uh, AI safety and at least my perception was that Larry was not taking uh, AI safety uh, seriously enough um, and um, what did he say about it? He really seemed to be um, what it wants once sort of a digital super basically digital god if you will uh, uh, as soon as possible um, he wanted that? Yes, he's made many public statements over the years. Uh, that that too, the whole goal of Google is uh, uh, what's called AGI, artificial general intelligence, or artificial superintelligence. Yes. And then at one point, uh, I said, "Well, what about you know? We're going to make sure humanity's okay here." Um, and and, um, uh, and then he called me a speciest. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> did he use Did he use that term? Yes. And there were witnesses. I wasn't the only one there when he called me a speciest. And so I was like, okay, that's it. Uh, I've Yes, I'm a speciest. Okay. You got me. <laughs> what are you? <laughs> yeah, I'm fully a speciest. Um, busted. Um, so um, that was his last straw
1: Okay. So he just told you that Larry Page of Google, which has an AI that's on the verge of getting out of control, doesn't care about humans. So the race to get the AI in place is a is a race by the elites to make maximum amounts of profits at the expense that we could lose control of the AI and it could destroy us. Because every time we listen to the AI, it wants to kill us. It lies it makes stuff up, it's somehow demonically inspired. But give me the people and I'll give you the money. You see what I'm saying? Same thing. Why does Bud Light not care about its people and instead care about promoting a transgender mentally ill person? because it's about money. You're like, well, they're gonna lose all this money from the people who buy Bud Light. You don't understand. This is all about an ESG score. They want a better score because when it all goes down, those who are on the ticket will do the best. So it's all about money. They don't care about kids. Our schools don't care about the kids. You really think it's about the kids? It's about indoctrination. The whistleblower had a great article, the great betrayal. The greatest betrayal is what our public school systems are doing. They're taking our kids, because we allow them, trading money, so to speak, free education, so they can indoctrinate our kids. Now they're going to target our food. New York is already targeting food choices, because they say the foods that you eat are are harming the planet. So they're now going to eliminate that. Now, again, it's under the fake idea of saving the planet, but really what this is is gonna cause mass starvation among people. Well, they don't care if people die. They just care about getting their agenda passed and becoming the gods of this world. They go after the farmers. They're wanting to eliminate farming to cut carbon emissions, which is a lie. But what is that about? What will farming do to people? It will destroy them. They will starve. They will not have enough food. But why? ESG score, green, going green, saving the planet. They have already done the deal with Sodom and uh, the king of Sodom. And what did they trade? Money for people. Same thing. FBI, same thing. The FBI is functioning like the KGB at this point. Okay? And the problem with is they won't release the manifesto that the transgender person who shot up three kids and three adults, they won't release her the, the manifesto. Why? Because it poses too much danger to the public. What? It poses too much danger? No, you're trying to hide the transgender agenda, aren't you? And you're trying to say they're really nice people and they wouldn't do anything like that. Transgenderism already is mental illness. What are you talking about? That's why they shoot up places. But they don't care about people. They don't, the, the news people don't care about the three ba- uh, children and the three adults that kill, got killed by her or him. They don't care because it's about money. Now, everybody, they're saying everyone should have a digital ID, bank account, smartphone, um, and they're gonna spring this on us. Everybody should have a digital ID. Uh, Then anything can be done. That's right, anything can be done. And you will enslave people rather than free them if they introduce this. And they're on their way to do it. Here it is. US Senators Kristen Sinema, Independent Arizona, and Cynthia Loomis, uh, Republican of Wyoming, have introduced Senate Bill 884 also known as the Improving Digital Identity Act of 2023. I'm telling you, they're pushing the identi- uh, your, uh, uh, an identity, digital identity, because they don't care about you. They care about enslaving you. They've already done the deal with Sodom. But look how Abraham reacts. God bless him. And Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. Where did he get the term possessor of heaven and earth? Who told him that? Melchizedek. Melchizedek. You see the influence of how powerful Melchizedek was on Abraham. He's already using the same language. That I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you say, I have made Abraham rich, except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, and there, Eschol, and Mamre. Let them take the portion. What is Abraham saying? If it hadn't been for Melchizedek, intervene before he talked to Sodom, the king of Sodom. It's possible Abraham would have sold out. Very possible. The people for the money. And because of the uh, the interjection of Melchizedek, that's what turned Abraham around because Melchizedek shows Abraham, it was God who won the war. Abraham, it's God who provides for you the oil, I'm sorry, the, the wine and the bread. You don't need your provision from anyone else. God will provide for you and he will make good on the promises. That's the whole point of Melchizedek. And now that he faces the temptation, you can see the reaction. I'm not doing it. That's right, LL Yon will take care of me. He will provide for me. He will give me the victory, right? I am not about to let you steal God's glory. I am not about to taint myself with making some deals, selling out people in order to get rich. Not doing that. My God will provide. And that right there is the essence that you need to learn. You do not need to compromise because El Yon, the possessor of heaven and earth, will take care of you. That's why you don't have to sell out to your company. You don't have to sell out to the schools. You don't have to sell out to these things. If you will swear by the Most High, as Abraham did, Lord, I'm not selling out my family just to get along. I'm not selling out my kids I'm not doing that because you'll provide for me. That's it. So I think we need to understand what this guy did. Now this thing has went viral. And let me tell you something. The three older gentlemen didn't know what they're getting involved in by the way. They were told they're going to shoot a commercial or whatever it was. And they're going to be dancing in this commercial. And that's all they knew. They didn't know it involved drag queens. Okay? They didn't know it. So don't blame the three guys. They, had, they were not told what was going to happen. They're just going, you know, you're going to be in a commercial and you're going to dance. Okay. Out of the three guys, watch the one who refuses to compromise. Why don't we just pair up? I'm not into Uh, touching, okay? I'm I'm not, let me put that out front, no touching, no touching. No touching, I won't touch you.
0: I was paired up with Isaac, He was like, no touching. I was like, oh, this is gonna be fun. The music will start, the boys will turn around. So gentlemen, let's turn. Gorgeous. And then we start walking. Yeah. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Three, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And then maybe let's look at the gentleman. Gentlemen, you guys can acknowledge us. Ooh, who is this? Cool. Oh, I'm yeah. sorry, I'm sorry, I can't do this. I can't do this. I'm, sorry. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm a man of God, I can't do this. Yeah, I love those people, I pray for them. I would never do anything to hurt them or condemn them, but men are not supposed to dress like women. I'm not gonna go along, go along with that. It's time to stand up and be a man of God.
1: Amen. That's an Abraham type of guy. That's what we need to be, okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for what we can learn from Abraham's life. Thank you for the intervention of Melchizedek and that the real Melchizedek, the Lord Jesus Christ, always lives to intercede for us, always lives to warn us, always lives to guide us and direct us from making a deal with the king of Sodom. Thank you, Father. Help us to have ears to hear when he talks to us, when he leads us that we don't need to compromise because you will provide for us, you will make sure we're taken care of just like you did with Abraham. Thank you for that, Father. That gives us the strength to move forward and to never compromise. Bless this time, Father, and bless anyone that wants to know the Lord, Father, that, that they would understand that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, was buried and rose on the third day to give everlasting life to anyone who will believe. We pray now in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining
0: us for another lesson. We hope that this message is a blessing for you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website at rockharborchurch.net. Until next time,
1: remember, keep looking up for our redemption draws near.